0: Let me test you guys, okay?
1: Oh boy. Cuz the
0: mm. I always had trouble with the libertarians in the administration. How do you guys feel about tariffs on China?
2: And uh well, give me a little bit more detail like uh
0: So, so with okay, so <clears throat> in the in Trump Time book, there's a great scene where I do go mano y mano with Chris Wallace on his Sunday show, oh, right? Good for you. And it's like we're in each other's face and he goes, "What what's the problem with China?" I go and it just pops out of my head because it's Sunday, right? It's biblical. I go the seven deadly sins, right? Oh. And so I go, okay, so here's the problem. <laughs> it's, it's even get all seven. It's always it's always a chore, right? Okay? <laughs> okay, you start with the intellectual property theft to, mm-hmm. to the tune of half a trillion dollars a year. You got forced technology transfer, which is if you want to go and do business in China, uh, you got to hand over your technology, right? Totally unfair trade. You've got the the constant cyber hacking, both of personal individuals for their credit card, whatever, but also businesses, right, stealing their IP, another form. You've got what's called dumping, which is sending product below cost into markets as a way of pushing the, the domestic producers out and, and grabbing hold of those markets. You have China's state owned enterprises. I'm up to five now, right? Yeah, See these yeah. are the these are the national champions they send out with the with the full power of the state to go out and do battle and why why it's China building our subway systems instead of American companies. Um, currency manipulation, yep. which is like China lowers the value of their currency, which makes their Exports here cheaper And our our exports to them More expensive So our trade deficit goes up And then there's the seven uh, Is the killing of Americans With deadly fentanyl And that's both a health crisis As well as an economic thing Because a lot of the people Who die from fentanyl um, Are uh, working age Manufacturing blue collar yeah. workers Okay So Um, The the libertarian, the traditional libertarian view Is that, well, if China wants to sell us cheap goods We should just benefit from them And what I'm going is, no, 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 no It's like, that's a form of economic aggression If you take it as like a snapshot And you go into Walmart and stuff cheap That's cool, okay But if you play it like as a movie Over time and all your jobs go offshore and your wages are driven down and people go to the unemployment line and and workers will wind up committing suicide because they don't have jobs that's a serious thing so i get back and it, it, like in the in Trump time book i identify this this set of what i call the wall street transactionalists like Mnuchin at Treasury, Kudlow at the National Economic Council, Mulvaney, big libertarian. It's like, I try to do like buy American policies or China tariffs and these guys freak out. So I'll throw it back to you guys. Libertarian, do you do tariffs on china well, to protect yourself
2: well there's two different libertarians now mm. you've got yeah. the mises caucus and you've got the establishment you know old school type libertarians and they disagree on a lot of things yeah so i think uh, the mises guys are like pro-borders right
3: I th- yeah very much so I yeah. Think so. Yeah. yeah
2: so they're probably gonna say we have to protect american workers in america and then i think their view is more like within the area that we can protect we have libertarian values and views on how things are run yeah but we recognize you know outside of the borders So I I don't know if that's exactly their view, but I would say my view is is, is similar to that. Like, I don't want China ripping off American workers using uh, economic coercion and warfare to try and destroy this country. So everything within the borders, I believe in, you know, we're very libertarian, individual liberties, individual rights, civil rights, et cetera. And then when it comes to international trade and stuff, we must protect the people in our our community. Here's
0: an interesting stat for you folks. Our trade deficit with China is roughly equivalent to the People's Liberation Army defense budget. Huh. So, and, and by the way, uh, it's Tuesday, and Friday is not just Friday, it is Black Friday. Mm-hmm. And that's when everybody's going to be going to the big box, baby, wa- Walmart, Target, whatever. And a lot of that stuff they're going to buy uh, when they pick up that made in China stuff is actually going to be uh, you know, plows, uh, plows into uh, swords, plowshares into swords because that stuff is, uh, that money or trade deficit goes to fund all of their weapons. And I, what drives me nuts is is you ask at the beginning who I am, it's like the way I met Donald Trump, and I talk about in the in Trump time book because there was some, some confusion there. I wrote a trilogy of China books, right? Two, 2006, the coming China Wars. 2011, the Death by China book and film. And then those were economic-based. And then 2015, Crouching Tiger, uh, which was the rise of the Chinese military. So like in 2015, I write this book and say, yeah, China's developing these hypersonic missiles that can kill us with nuclear weapons, right? Okay, so that's like six years ago. And so China, just a couple of weeks ago, they fly a hypersonic uh, playing around in low orbit which is capable of bristling with weapons and everybody's go wow wow that's surprising oh my gosh no it's not it's like in 2006 uh, I predicted uh, in the coming China wars that China would create a global pandemic because of the way they handled the viruses and it was based on my research of how SARS-1 came about my point here is that China is an existential threat you got, you got Joe Biden Say it's no no it's just simply a competitor And part of what I've been trying to do uh, And what President Trump Was absolutely transformative about Was to raise People's awareness as they used to say In the 60s about The, the threat of, of Communist China the Chinese Communist Party coming after us And they're coming after us And uh, there so, it is
2: So what do what, what the tariffs to do How how will that help? So
0: the way tariffs work, um, if you if you if you if if you have a country like China that is dumping product in or stealing or whatever, the tariffs uh, first and foremost offset the advantage that they've gotten from the unfair trade. So that's your first best, right? But what we were also trying to do with China um, was to Get them to the bargaining table. So, in some sense, the tariffs were a penalty for things like intellectual property theft or currency manipulation. So, yeah. I th- it was fascinating. The, the The first chapter of the book I call it the Red Wedding chapter, uh, in, in homage to Game of Thrones. But we're sitting we're sitting there in the East Wing, and the president's about to sign this this skinny trade deal where we're supposed to deal with this economic uh, uh, aggression. And um, it's like I'm fighting the Wall Street transactionalists because all they were concerned is if China buys some more soybeans yeah. or whatever. They weren't focused on the core problem. But we had this strategy. It was called "dragon in a pot. Like, think about this. It's like we knew that there would be resistance to tariffs initially among a certain segment of the public. But to get people to accept them, what we did, and this was brilliant, President Trump, he, he got China to enter into negotiations. Every time China did something in those negotiations which was unfair, we'd raise the tariffs. And that allowed us, over time, to steadily increase yeah. the tariffs to over hundred billion $100 billion wow. of tariffs. And in a second term, I'll say this for the record, and I've talked many times with the president about this, we would have completely raised tariffs on everything to 100% and began to do what I believe has to be done, which is decouple from yeah. communist China. Because every time China makes another dollar off the United States or Europe or whatever, um, it, it's able to fuel both its military machine, but also... The the war China's conducting, like through the so called Belt and Road initiative, I don't know if you guys have yeah. talked oh, yeah, about yeah. that, yes, but of course. yeah, it's it's uh, you know, so it's basically the colonization of Africa, Latin America, Kazakhstan, and everything like that. I mean they've they've got a strategy and the advantage they have over us as a democracy is that um, we change governments and officials every every four years, right? And these guys that I would uh, see, you—I sat, you um, know, Saka, the G20 across from Xi Jinping and his married band of apparatchiks. Same thing in Buenos Aires uh, many times. I went, I went to Beijing. I, these, my point here is that these guys across the table had been there for years, and they will be there for years, yeah. and I'll be gone. And and, and instead now in in Biden land, they've got a bunch of. Uh, uh, appeasers and people who here's here's the way they do this, Tim. It's like they, like there's money pots and honey pots. Okay, the honey pot is Eric Swalwell yeah. in California, right? <laughs> Sleeping yes. his way up and down the coast with a Chinese spy uh, I joked he had like STDs, like spy transmitted diseases, right? <laughs> that's that's the honey pot, right? But the money pots are are much more insidious because what China will do with government officials is like, they'll give them like trips to Beijing or they'll put them in a think tank, they'll give them grants at universities. And these people become beholden to uh, the Chinese and then they wind up like Jake Sullivan is the national security advisor, right? I mean, this is crazy stuff.
4: Well, there's well those well he'll just do uh, business dealings with uh, Biden's sons and, and and I agree with your point yeah. when it comes to decoupling, especially from China's pharma industry, which the United States yeah. is heavily reliant yeah. on. But I think previously what you were describing was globalization instead of libertarianism, because when we look at what China is doing, they're 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 treating China like a conduit for a multinational corporate takeover of the world, and people are yeah. b- using China as a slave factory to produce the goods. But this was all started under Henry Kissinger, who literally took manufacturing jobs from (laughs) the United States, deindustrialized, and then took all the jobs to China. And now Mm -hmm. China now has taken a lot of workforce, a lot of economic opportunities from the American people. And obviously, if someone steals from you, that's not libertarianism. There should be consequences, and you should have a right to contract with who you want to contract with, and we shouldn't be contracting with people who are stealing from us. So that libertarian kind of idea still holds strong to me, but because of the multinational corporations having so much power and influence buying out the US government we don't have libertarianism we don't even have capitalism we have socialism for the super rich which is orchestrated by elites like Kissinger I take take
0: a really good short but nice shot at at Henry yes he's he's, the dumbest one of the dumb smart guys you meet along the way who's made millions and millions and millions of dollars from that the funny thing about these corporations though The funny thing about these corporations, and General Electric is the poster child for this. All of these American corporations who thought they could go over to China, offshore, uh, all the jobs and things like that, wound up getting destroyed over there. They got stripped of their technology, and they wound up having competitors over there who were Chinese. And then if you look like GE, it's like it hit its peak. It was at its apex. Then the moment it started to go over to China, that was the end of that corporation. Now, I, I Again, I'm old enough to remember when GE was the most important and powerful corporation in the world. Today, it's like China just took that.
2: Thanks for checking out this segment from the TimCast IRL podcast. If you want to watch live, you can check out this channel Monday through Friday at 8 p.m. Now, don't forget to smash that like button, subscribe to this channel. And if you want more unfiltered and uncensored content with all of these guests, go to timcast.com and become a member. All of these guests you know and love in exclusive segments on our website where we are unrestricted in what we talk about. So you'll definitely not want to miss it. Thanks for hanging out. We'll see you all next time.
5: I want to talk about a remarkable phenomenon that is going on in Asia um, and Africa, namely the large-scale conversion of Muslims to Christianity. Historically, this is uh, completely unprecedented. Historically, it's very difficult, and very few people have converted out of Islam. There are a couple of exceptions to that rule, But in general, well, we know that Islam doesn't like uh, people to convert out. In fact, if you think of the old uh, line about the Hotel California, you can check out anytime you like, but you can never leave. That applies to Islam. You can't leave. Uh, And you can't leave to become an atheist, and you can't leave to become a member of another religion. In both cases, it's considered not just losing your faith, but apostasy, betraying the Muslim people. And it's been punishable by imprisonment or beatings, or in some cases, even death. Remember, for example, the uh, fatwa that was put on Salman Rushdie, the writer, because he was seen as a sort of apostate uh, to Islam. So, this uh, strategy of making it difficult, if not impossible, to convert out has uh, historically stopped Muslims from doing it. And there, as I say, are a few exceptions to this rule. In 16th century Spain, once uh, Catholic monarchs got a hold of Spain, they um, they established preferential treatment for Catholics, and they essentially expelled the Moors, the Muslims, from Spain. Now, there were some Muslims at that time who converted to Christianity in order to be able to stay in Spain, but that's, that's an historical exception. Um, Even as late as the 1980s, a missionary uh, wrote a book called uh, Ten Muslims Meet Christ. And while the book focused on 10 Muslim converts, uh, it was very clear from the book itself that this is extremely rare. It's really hard to get a Muslim convert. So, like, I found 10. Let me tell you about their stories. But now, interestingly... In many countries, not just in one particular place, in Algeria, in Albania, in Syria, in Kurdistan, in Egypt, you have Muslims converting to Christianity. In fact, they're converting to Christianity in such numbers that there's even a name for them. It's, they're called MBBs. Pastors call them MBBs, meaning Muslim background believers. Believers, Christian believers, who come from a Muslim background. Uh, how many converts? No one knows exactly for sure. But from the Muslim side, you have had complaints. Uh, there was a complaint um, by a guy on Al Jazeera who said that by his count, six million Muslims are converting to Christianity each year. Think about that. That's a huge number. Uh, traditionally. Uh, Muslims have gained uh, forces by conquering. Uh, So they don't really uh, convert people to Islam, really by persuasion either. They use force. But as I say, very few people convert out. But now that's happening. Now, one of the most... uh, Why is it happening? Well, one reason it's happening is that people are rebelling, Muslims are rebelling against radical Islam. Uh, One pastor in Egypt apparently said that the Islamist, the Muslim Brotherhood President Mohammed Morsi, was, quote, the great evangelist. Why? Because the extremism of his policies told a lot of Muslims, wow, this guy's crazy. You know, I don't want to be part of any religion that he's part of. So that's part of the reason for the conversion. But the fact that it's happening in so many different places shows that that's not the only reason. Now. Interestingly, when you talk to Christian pastors, and I'm referring here to a very interesting article that quotes a number of these pastors, they claim that the reason that Muslims convert, or at least a substantial number of them convert, is that they have dreams and visions of Jesus Christ. Now, this is a little bit far out, but apparently an Iranian convert, this guy's fairly typical, he said, quote, many people are having dreams and visions about a shining man dressed in white. Telling them about Jesus. The leader of a Presbyterian church in Pakistan said that there were some Afghan uh, Imams who traveled hundreds of miles to study the Bible. And when he was asked, well, why are they doing that? He goes, quote, dreams. Christ appeared to them in their sleep. Um, and then um, a Colorado pastor who conducts classes in Arabic via the radio and the internet, he goes, virtually all my students came following dreams. Following dreams. There's a missionary named Michael Stalwork, and he is a missionary in Frankfurt, and he said a veiled woman came up to him. He thought it was a beggar. He was about to give her money, but she goes, are you the imam? And he said, well, I'm not an imam, but I am the pastor of this church. And she said, well, in that case, you are the right man. God has commanded me in a dream to go to the big church on the market square and ask for the imam, meaning the priest, to tell me the truth. So, I think what I find fascinating about all this is that these people who are having dreams... Now, Christ is a prophet in Islam. He's called Isa. But interestingly, in these dreams, these Muslims are getting the clear idea that it's not Isa. uh, That it's, in fact, the Christian Christ... That they need to be following and following through the mechanism of the Christian Bible and the Christian Church. It's a little bit hard to know what to make about this, but I think it's thrilling for us as Christians to see that Muslims, who are the hardest people in the world to convert, Muslim Islam hasn't really lost the force of its original uh, revelation. I don't entirely know what to make about these strange visitations and dreams, but they seem to be real enough to the people who have them to suggest at least the possibility that God is doing some remarkable work in the world through Muslims pointing them to Christianity.
3: I'm delighted to welcome the perfect person to discuss this further with us, Eric Metaxas. Eric is a best-selling author, speaker, and radio host. He is the host of The Eric Metaxas Show, and the author of the new book, Is Atheism Dead?, as well as other books such as Bonhoeffer and Miracles. He has been a keynote speaker at the National Prayer Breakfast, and is also the founder of Socrates in the City, Conversations on the Examined Life, an event series exploring the deepest topics in life. Eric, thank you so much for being here. I want to start out by you telling us a little bit about your journey. I know that you went to Yale. You came to Christ four years after going to Yale. I know your book, Fish Out of Water, is one of the titles of one of your books, I believe. But tell us how you went from converting to Christianity and also being at such a liberal college to now being one of the most prominent Christian leaders in the country.
6: Well, that's very flattering, Danielle. Thank you. But honestly, um, You know, these things are always a mystery. I I think I had a lot of intellectual objections to the faith, which is why uh, one of the reasons I wrote this book is Atheism Dead, because I I don't think you can argue people into the kingdom, but sometimes you need to clear the brush away. People have some ideas that are just, they're not true, and once they look into it and they realize that faith is reasonable, uh, it helps them be open to God. That was kind of my situation. Yale drove me, I mean, I grew up in the Greek Orthodox Church. My parents loved America. They came from Greece and Germany, taught me to love this country and to love freedom. And I think, you know, places like Yale, as you know from Dartmouth, they're kind of designed to sort of make you drift politically left and into agnosticism. And so I lost what faith I had, and when I was, 24, I moved back in with my parents, which was no fun. They were like, why are you here? We didn't get to go to college, Why? what are you doing here? Long story short, I met a guy who started sharing his faith with me. And I was still kind of hostile, but it began to chip away. And around my 25th birthday, uh, I was still reasonably hostile to faith, but I said, God, if you're there, I need a sign. And I write about it. I've written about it many places, but especially in my new book, uh, the last book called Fish Out of Water, God spoke to me in a dream in a way that was so beyond anything I can really properly describe. It it was clear that God had revealed himself to me. It was game over. I woke up. I knew the Bible was true. I knew that uh, Jesus was God. I mean, it changed everything overnight. It took some time for me to kind of catch up. Ah, uh, intellectually reading and stuff. but, oh my goodness, it was it was very dramatic, really?
3: Wow, that is incredible. So evangelism really does plant a seed. Now, look at you now. Oh, my goodness. That's amazing. Um, I now want to dive further into your new book, Is Atheism Dead? Eric, can you start off by answering that question for us: Is atheism dead?
6: Well, it's not dead as a movement. but uh, a- as a real philosophy, it has to be because, I mean, look, I respect people who have questions and I respect people who differ uh, with me or with anyone. We should, this is America particularly, we should uh, respect people's questions and ideas. But I think agnosticism, you know, the idea that we're not sure, I don't know, I have questions, that makes sense. But atheism, I think, based on what we now know, and this is, I mean, literally based on what I put in this book, science very recently uh, has pointed clearly to God in ways that most of us don't have a clue about. And when I discovered this, I said, am I going crazy? The, the evidence has piled up and up and up. People aren't really writing about it or if they write about it, it doesn't get a lot of news. I said, I've got to put all this stuff in a book. So I, I put it in the book and I effectively say that what we know today from science flips the script on the question I mean, in 1966, Time Magazine had a cover article that said, is God dead? To me, the question today is, is atheism dead? It it, it doesn't seem to make sense intellectually anymore. Uh, I think those who take it seriously see that. So there'll always be people who call themselves atheists, but I, I don't know why you'd want to. I think at this point, to be intellectually taken seriously, you'd have to say I'm an agnostic.
3: Right. You talk about a number of scientific clues that point to God, um, Eric. What would you say are some of the most important scientific findings that point to God that confirm what theists have been saying for centuries?
6: Well, the number one, uh, the number one argument probably is the fine-tuned universe. And uh, I was speaking to your dad about this this morning. He debated Christopher Hitchens. I mean, he knew this stuff. And the fact is that. Christopher Hitchens was once asked, "What's the number one argument on the other side?" And he, in a rare moment of candor, because he was just nasty and you know he was not really polite to the other side, he said, "Well, without a doubt, the fine-tuned universe—that uh, that that argument, the fine-tuned argument—that that everything in the universe is calibrated just so. If it were a little bit this way, there's no life. a little bit this way, it's no life. That's the one that you know gives us atheists." the the most trouble the working out or whatever. I mean, he was very honest in that moment. And I think that what I find funny is that we have this narrative that says science is pushing faith out. And we've heard this basically since Darwin. It goes on and on and on. Time Magazine in 1966 puts it in the front of America's living rooms. Is uh, God dead? And roughly since 1966, the evidence has been piling up for God and the most dramatic evidence is the fine-tuned universe. And the reason it's dramatic is because it continues to pile up. It's not like we discover something and we're done. Everywhere we look with telescopes, with electron microscopes, we see evidence of a level of design that is just astonishing. You, you, you think, it's not that, hey, if things were 40% different. I mean, if things were 0.001 percent different in this direction or in that direction, there's no life. Um, Whether you're talking about the the, uh, creation of the universe, 13.8 billion years ago in the Big Bang, or the creation of Earth, 4.5 billion years ago, or uh, the creation of life, wherever you look, science now has the tools to see what we couldn't see 50 and 100 years ago. A level of design that is simply incontrovertible. It's, It's staggering. And many uh, atheists or agnostics are deeply troubled by this because you know the science doesn't lie, there it is. You might not like the conclusion, so they're trying to wiggle out of it with things like multiverse theories or whatever, which become preposterous. So I think that the, the good news is that science leads us to faith in God really dramatically. And again, the more we know, the more true that becomes.
3: Absolutely. And I love the section of your book that focuses on biblical archaeology. There are findings that corroborate facts in the Old and New Testament. Tell us about that, because I think a lot of people might not know about that.
6: Yeah, this is, I mean, again, it's so funny. I I, I met a guy uh, in Houston, a, a, a scientist named James Tour, And when he started talking to me about the origin of life on earth, it was so fascinating. I said, I've got to write about that. Nobody ever talks about that. So that kind of kicked me off. I'm thinking, like, how, does nobody, how did nobody ever hear about that? I never heard about that. The same thing happened with archeology. span I met a guy in Albuquerque, who uh, a pastor, Skip Heitzig, tells me, oh, he, he discovered biblical Sodom. I said, what what, what? what do you mean he discovered biblical Sodom? Wouldn't I have read about that? You're talking about Sodom from 1700 BC? from the first couple of pages of the Bible. Well, I looked into it, and the more I looked into it, the more I thought there is no doubt that he's discovered biblical Sodom. This is astonishing archeology. span It was corroborated in Nature magazine about a month ago. They did a very long peer-reviewed academic article, 21 scientists, weighing in on this, on every tiny aspect of the science of what what was discovered and how this place had been destroyed. Uh, they conclude it's a cosmic airburst event. In other words, a, a meteor, you know, maybe 200 feet in diameter coming into the earth at 35,000 miles an hour, exploding, you know, 300,000 degrees initially, and then it cools down and it melts bone, brick. It just... This is what science says. So anyway, so when I discovered this guy and his story, I said, number one, it's amazing. Number two, how is it that no one knows about this? I said, I've got to write about it in my book. So I said, I'm gonna write about that. I'm gonna write about James Tour, and then I'm gonna add in all this other stuff because everywhere you turn, in science and in archeology, span it seems to corroborate, A, the idea that God exists, a designer exists, and B, the idea that the scripture is history, whatever we seem to find, corroborates what it says in the Bible, down to the tiniest details, down even to the earliest pages of Genesis with the discovery of biblical Sodom. Most people simply don't hear about this, they don't know about it, Christians don't hear about it, nobody hears about it. I thought, we're living in a bubble. It's time we understood that the evidence now leads us to logically conclude that these things are true can you force somebody to believe it no but let's let's get updated on the new facts because these are true and we didn't know about them you know 50 years ago
3: absolutely let's briefly discuss miracles this is more from your last book titled miracles but tell me what do you believe is the best defense of miracles and how do you situate miracles today when many people may not feel like they experience them
6: one of the funny things about this book is atheism dead is that when you look at when you really look at science honestly you realize that scientists themselves they might not call it miracles but they have to deal with miracles when you talk about the big bang science leads us inevitably some scientists went kicking and screaming they didn't want to go but inevitably people finally discovered or agreed that yes 13.8 billion years ago Everything emerged out of nothing, time and space, all matter, all energy, all time emerged out of nothing. Science already tells us that can't happen. The second law of thermodynamics says, sorry, it's either here or it's not here. You can't create matter and energy and whatever. So scientists give this a fancy term, they call it a singularity. It's a point beyond which science cannot go. So then the really creepy thing is, uh, if we now believe this happened once, 13.8 billion years ago, why couldn't it happen again? And of course, uh, in the 20th century, when they discovered what we now call black holes, they discovered, yes, it does happen again. All matter uh, can, can get crushed down in some kind of a, a supergiant star. The gravity crushes itself down, 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 until uh, it, it effectively doesn't let light out and, and, and disappears. I mean, that's, it's more complicated, but the ideas of what we call a miracle, this border between this world and the other world, even science uncomfortably has to acknowledge that there are these, these mysteries, but there are some people that are very upset about it, and they say that even talking about that is against science, but, but that's really silly. I mean, no one has ever seen an atom but we don't say, well, you've never seen it. Have you ever seen a radio wave? No. So what are you talking about? I mean, there are many things even within the realm of science that at least approach the ineffable and that you have to have a sense of mystery. You have to have a sense of imagination. I mean, imagination doesn't have very much to do with what you can see, feel, hear, touch, taste. I mean, it's it's this other thing, it's mind. So. Um, most people in life are comfortable with the idea of miracles. They might say, well, I've never seen a miracle. But when you begin talking about it, if you're telling me science said that the entire universe came out of nothing 13.8 billion years ago, I don't think anybody could think of a miracle more astonishing than that. So when you talk about somebody being healed from cancer or somebody rising from the dead, that, that that's like, you know, uh, Creating War and Peace, Tolstoy. You say, well, I believe he could create War and Peace, but I don't believe he could move a comma in the manuscript. That's asking me too much. It it doesn't make any sense. And so, I think we have to we have to stop with the narrative that science is at odds with faith, uh, because it leads to this false dichotomy. And I also think we have to say that science is now proving the existence of a creator, but more importantly. This, this lie, this myth that science is at odds with faith, um, it is Christian faith that led to modern science. That's a fact. I mean, Non-Christians say this, that it was in the 16th and 17th centuries that the scientific revolution and modern science came because of some Christian views that really lent itself to that. So that's not something that you can really even argue about. And all of the early scientists were profound men of Christian faith. And so it's almost something that's crept in through Darwin and it, 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 you know, it, it found purchase in the culture through uh, the 1966 uh, magazine article, Is God Dead? Like, oh yeah, we've all figured it out. God's probably dead, science is dead. But since then, the evidence has pointed in the other direction and it's really about time we said, that's a myth, that's nonsense. Uh, if there's such a thing as truth, uh, it doesn't know any boundaries. You can't say, well, you know, here's science and here's this and here's that. And, and you don't even need to talk about what Stephen Jay Gould at Harvard called over non-overlapping magisteria. Like you've got your religious truth here and you have your scientific truth here. It gets silly. Either you're talking about truth or you're not. And I, I, I hope that in writing this book, I, I help people be more comfortable with the idea that all truth ultimately is one and you don't need to pretend like I've got my box of truth over here and you've got your box of whatever over there
3: right Christianity influences everything we think about and as you said science is not going to be the reason someone is going to not be Christian for example because scientific evidence points to God but tell me a little bit why do you think people are dropping away from organized worship in America or leaving Christianity if it's not because of science why do you think this is happening
6: Well, I think in many ways it is because of science. In other words, I think people are always looking for excuses. I mean, if I have an experience in a church and it's unpleasant, uh, I don't logically need to leap to the idea that there's no God, but people will grab on to whatever's offered them. So if Christopher Hitchens writes a preposterous, poorly argued book of nonsense that has a lot of jokes and makes religious people look stupid, it will sell a lot and people go, that's cool, I'm with that. That's kind of how we human beings make a lot of decisions, we're not that logical. And I think that if the narrative for the better part of a century is that God and religion are on the way out, a lot of people, if the culture begins to lean away from that, or if uh, if uh, I have friends who have a sexuality or a sexual ethic that leans away from that, it's really easy for me to be like, okay, I'm going to give up that. And by the way, it looks like it's on the way out anyway. Well, the fact is it's not on the way out. On the contrary, the more we discover not from archaeology and science, but from from biography and history, it all points to God, and it points to the preposterousness of what we call atheism. So I think that sometimes we have to understand that movements and trends don't follow logic. Uh, people do what's cool. People do what uh, you know might get me ahead in life. If I uh, if I'm a scientist, even Einstein. Early in the book, I talk about he he was embarrassed, the great Einstein, to admit that his equations show that the universe is expanding because it sort of smacked of religion, that the universe came from nowhere. And he was like, whoa, I don't want I don't want people looking down their nose at me. I want them to respect me as a scientist. So even Einstein r- was guilty of succumbing to the temptation to what people think, to worrying about what people think. So I just think that's what people do. We have to make our best argument and we should never worry about what people think. We should simply worry about what's true. And if you follow the science, you follow the evidence, you follow the archaeology, and you follow the logic of philosophy of of atheism, uh, it really becomes dramatic. The evidence is on the side of God. And at the end of the book, I talk about the two people who took atheism more seriously than almost anybody in the 20th century, Jean-Paul Sartre and Albert Camus, both of them who had the guts to look into the bleak abyss of atheism. Uh, unflinchingly. Both of them at the end of their lives came to faith in God. Nobody seems to know that. When I discovered it, I, I almost fainted. I said, how come nobody knows this? But it goes with the larger narrative that all the evidence for God tends to get ignored or pushed to the side. I said, it's about time we put it together. I put as much of it as I can find in this book is atheism dead? Because I think that those of us who believe need to be bolstered in our belief and understand, no, 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 it really is true. It's not at all at odds with science. And those of us who aren't sure need a place where, where we can read evidence and, and, and things that are reasonable. I'm not making some wild religious case. I'm simply doing my best uh, You know, to, 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 to try to present what the newest evidence is, basically.
3: Absolutely. Well, this is a fantastic book to equip you to know exactly how to fight back against many arguments on the left, those who say faith and science are unreasonable. Um, So make sure to check out Eric's brand new book, Is Atheism Dead? is the title. Um, Eric, where can people find you to keep up with you?
6: You can find me right here, which is to say, ericmetaxas.com is my website. Please sign up for my newsletter because there's all kinds of stuff. I've been canceled from YouTube for speaking truth, I guess. Uh, and if you go to my website, ericmetaxas.com, and you sign up for my newsletter, we'll send you videos of all of my interviews. I interview so many wonderful people, and it's just a joy uh, to to share this stuff. So please do go to my website, I'd be grateful. Thank you uh, for asking.
3: Thanks so much, Eric. Good luck with your book tour, and can't wait to see you again soon.
6: God bless you, thank
5: you.
3: That wraps up tonight's episode. Please follow me on social media at Danielle D'Souza Gill. You can actually see the links below this video. So it's very easy to click the uh, links below. Click the follow button. If you'd like to submit a question for me to answer, please email me an audio or video recording at Danielle.desouza at epictimes.nyc. I'll see you next week. And remember, we are the counterculture.
1: Matthias Desmet, he's a psychologist, he's also a statistician, he's at the University of Ghent, so this is Belgium, he's a European but he speaks fluent English. Many of us are very impressed by his thinking, Bobby Kennedy for instance has met with him personally and uh, spoken to him about his theories as have many of my peers. I think Matthias is onto something and he calls it mass formation psychosis. So when he says mass formation, you can think of this equivalent to crowd. So it's crowd psychosis. That's what we're really talking about. There's easy ways to fix groupthink by just bringing in dissenting voices and making sure you give them platforms. With mass formation psychosis, this is like hypnosis. It really is hypnosis. This is what happened to the German people. If you live in Europe or you are have a relative who's a holocaust survivor or also if you've lived behind the soviet union curtain eastern europe etc this is a, a fundamental problem that people have is understanding how can for instance the german people who are highly educated very liberal in the classic sense you know western thinking people how could they go so crazy so deep into crazy land that they were doing what they did to the Jews. How could this happen to a civilized people? And this is the explanation for that. It has been a major focus of academic inquiry for decades and decades in Europe. So with what we're experiencing here, you have to have a set of preconditions. And and walk with me back to, remember... 2019, it seems like forever ago. The precursors for mass formation psychosis is you have to have a situation in which the population is decoupled from each each other. They don't have social bonds. Everybody on their little cell phones and everything else, okay, where we're fragmented into our communities, Facebook communities and other things. Yes, there are tribes, but we're now in a situation where there's sub, 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 sub tribes. Everybody's fragmented. Nobody's feeling connected. Okay, there's got to be a lack of sense making. The world has to somehow not make sense. What's happening in the world? It just seems to be overwhelming. Things don't make sense. Remember how we were all kind of thinking this back in 2019 and we had the elections and what was going on? Clearly, there's big forces at work there and nothing made sense. This leads to free floating anxiety, which is the source of the greatest psychological pain. And my wife, for example, experiences this all the time, many people do. So for her, she has this chronic sense of anxiety. She wakes up in the middle of the night, suddenly alerted to some thing that she's been dreaming about. So this sense of free-floating anxiety, things don't make sense. We're no longer connected to each other. And we also have free-floating discontent that Things aren't right and I don't like it very much and I'm not sure where to put my finger on it. A lot of us had this feeling. Now think about what happened when the virus broke out. The world obsessed over this virus. Suddenly, every software person in the world was an expert on molecular virology and epidemiology. I've had to deal with them, you know? It just, we all suddenly became obsessive experts spending all our time on the media trying to figure out what the heck is going on because it didn't make sense and we're trying to protect our children and everything else. When these conditions happen and then the entire population gets focused on one thing, it forms something akin to hypnosis where all they can think about, they're totally obsessed with that one thing. This is what happens with hypnosis is you can hypnotize somebody, and get them to focus on just one little tiny thing and you can do surgery on them they won't feel it this is a fundamental phenomena of the human mind is this ability to become hypnotized by focusing all of your attention on one small thing once that happens people lose their ability to have rational thought and judgment even if you weren't obsessed, you had all this fear porn coming at us all the time, 24-7, through every channel. Now, was this intentional or was it just selling clicks? There's a lot of signs that it was. there was an intentional component here. That we're sitting in a situation in which we have been actively managed psychologically by some entity that has financial benefit or power to gain from doing this. This gets to the point about global totalitarianism. But regarding mass formation psychosis, once this happens, there's two key things. Everybody gets focused. They have this fusion of their discontent, this focus on a thing. And then leaders step in that sees this moment. And when they're identified as leaders or they're promoted as leaders, and the crowd can see no evil, they can hear no evil, they can speak no evil. And those leaders can say anything. It does not have to be true. And the crowd will believe it. Furthermore, with this kind of process, mass formation psychosis that we saw in 1930s Germany, and we've seen in other situations, outside dissenters, anybody who says something that is contrary to the narrative must be attacked. These situations must have a common enemy. This was well described in the 1984 book of George Orwell, where there was this constant threat of the Eurasian forces. They were nebulous. One never really knew where they were or if they were going to attack, but they were always used to drive fear in the crowd. So this crowd now that's formed as central leaders that are lying to them all the time, like Tony Fauci, And as you see, there's a narrow world in which those people that have been hypnotized in this way, you can tell them until you're blue in the face what the data are, what the facts are. You can show them video clips of Tony Fauci lying. It doesn't matter. I was in Tampa the other day, and a physician asking questions came up in the line, broken hearted. She has many other physicians and medical professionals in her family, and she's disaffected from all of them. And she said, it doesn't matter how much information I provide to them, how many papers I provide to them, what data I provide to them, they can't hear it. And it's true, they literally can't. They are hypnotized. This has happened all over the world. It's been actively promoted it is the consequence of all this censorship and propaganda that we've been subjected to and when it seems to you that the rest of the world has gone mad the truth is they have (laughs) okay and the question is what can we do about it so i spoke to matthias about this about where does he see this going and it's really a bit grim he thinks that this Mass psychosis has developed to a point where the global totalitarianism is unavoidable. It will sweep over us. We're seeing it in Austria. Number one, they're locking down during the holidays. And they say, you will be vaccinated. Now, that flies in the face of the data, which shows the vaccination won't stop the spread of the virus. It doesn't matter. They will impose the vaccines on you. They're talking about doing this in Germany. They're talking about all kinds of mandates in the United States, like you say, including for the children. Think that through. okay? so this is happening. And Matthias believes that it's now to a point that it is going to progress through the population, whether we like it or not. We have to continue to try to provide information, accurate information. There's a couple things we can do. We can substitute the fear of the virus, which is irrational, for a greater threat. We can break through to people if we help them to understand that what we're seeing is a coordinated global focus on deploying a global totalitarian solution. Totalitarianism is a bigger boogeyman than the viruses by far. Losing control to Bill Gates and the World Economic Forum and BlackRock and Vanguard is a bigger threat than SARS-CoV-2 is for you or your children, by far, okay? And people can hear that. They can see it. Matthias has tested it. And you can break this, this fusion in their minds if you give them something that's even of greater concern, which is loss of their freedom. When you when you make it clear to people that they're on the threshold of losing their rights, they get activated. So this is one topic area that a lot of people get. And often the breakthrough thing is they're going to force my kids to take the jab. And suddenly people wake up with that one also. But the problem is all those underlying things haven't been fixed. The real problem, to be blunt, is that our society is sick. It's sick in a bunch of ways. And I think the only thing that can come out of this To get us away from that, to start to heal us is this idea of think global, act local that is behind intentional communities. Meanwhile, while all this crazy is going on in the world, the rest of us that are able to see through for whatever reason, maybe because we got fired from our job or we experienced mainstream media first person and realized how corrupt and twisted that world is or maybe we experience big science and all the corruption within big science in a very brutal first-person way. Things have caused some of us to be able to be a little more skeptical about what's going on in the world. So we can't get beyond this if we don't find some way to heal ourselves. And I think we gotta start that healing process locally. The message that I've been trying to promote in these various speaking engagements is a message of healing, not division. And of trying to empower people to start building local community, telephone call lists, you know, work through your church, whatever your organization is, build on that. Find physicians that will administer early treatment. I think that now is the time to build local community, start to form networks with each other, We're providing information to older people who are often home alone, scared, and not able to access the internet. There's a few courageous leaders politically in a lot of scared chickens. Basically, the Republican side is unified that these mandates are wrong. Now, we're having trouble breaking through the other side, but angry moms, I think, may be the thing that saves our democracy. (laughs) So there is hope. But we've still got a long way to go, but I think we've seen some significant progress, so I don't want to leave everybody thinking it's all doom and gloom.